0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Daily Covfefe. Today is Thursday, November 14th. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and unfortunately, I am sans Carrie today. She had other obligations, and someday we'll be a real company, and we'll be here, both of us, every day, or even more than both of us. But not yet. She will return tomorrow. We'll have live Covfefe Friday, like we always do. I thought today might be a good time, because I know I certainly appreciate when Carrie is... uh, is around to talk to, so um, I don't want to waste any interesting topics that I could be discussing with Carrie uh, on today's Kofefi. So I thought it might be a good time to answer a question that I received recently on email about anarchy and voting, and it was directed at me, and possibly might be the kind of question that will put Carrie to sleep anyway. So I'm just going to answer the question, and that'll be today's Kofefi. It's, uh, it's really two parts. I'm going to read uh, part of the question, part of the email that was sent that contains the question. And this person writes, Carter mentioned being an anarchist who does not participate in elections. Was this true? If so, could you consider doing a podcast on both topics? Why would you not participate in elections and why anarchy would be an ideal end state? And I'm going to read the next paragraph, even though those are the two questions. The next paragraph says, To me, these are separate questions. I know people who voted for Trump hoping to destroy the government. Although I do not understand this goal, they were participating in shaping the society they wanted to live in. But to not participate makes even less sense to me. And yes, there are many ways to shape a society besides voting, but what is the end goal of an anarchy society? And then they have the words oxymoron in quotes, that appeals to people. So, yeah, I thought I would address these questions. First, I think it's important to define anarchy because um, <clears throat> I think sometimes when people hear an- anarchy, they think of like a Mad Max environment where there's raping and killing and pillaging happening, and uh, it's just chaos everywhere, and that is not what I mean or most anarchists mean. Maybe most anarcho-capitalist types mean when they say anarchy um so just merriam-webster definition of anarchy is there's there's two main ones the first one has has three parts to it the first one is absence of government that's part a part b is a state of lawlessness or political disorder due to the absence of governmental authority and c is a utopian society of individuals who enjoy complete freedom without government um and the second definition is absence or denial of any authority or established order, and uh, absence of order or disorder. So, really throwing out the second definition. And I want to clarify when I say anarchy, and when most anarcho-capitalists like me say anarchy, um, we don't actually mean chaos. And 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 I I would even push back on this idea of absence of government. Um, things can be governed without a central government. And there's a distinction that needs to be made here. Anarchists aren't necessarily against the idea of people organizing and governing, but they are against the idea of doing it through the use of force, which is how central governments currently govern. And I'll get into that in a minute. But let's start with that definition. So the two questions, I'm going to answer the two questions in reverse order, because the second question is going to be easy, but only after the context of the first question. So the first question I'll say is, you know, answer is, why would anarchy be an ideal end state? So I'll answer that, and then I'll talk about participating in elections, and that will be quick. So some context. I've got a few notes here, but I haven't, uh, they're not super extensive, so forgive me if I I ramble, I'll try not to. For some context... Um, it's important to understand that anarchy, being being an anarcho-capitalist, at least for me and from the ones that I know, doesn't arise from a a sense of uh, a thrill of seeing disorder or chaos. It's not doesn't arise from resentment or hating authority. It doesn't arise out of a um, just sort of blissful excitement that we're going to get to do whatever we want. Um, It arises from a consistent application of moral philosophy, and it's often a reluctant conclusion. For me, it was a very reluctant conclusion to come to. I didn't want to come to it. Um, But let me give you some of the, the, when I say the application of moral philosophy, let me give you the context, and obviously my thought process will be slightly different than other people's, but I'm going to try and represent uh, what I think are a couple of the basic thought processes here. So first of all, um, there's a recognition among many people, and and I believe this is absolutely true, that uh, humans, man's primary means of survival is is his rational mind, right? This is uh, it's taken from Ayn Rand, but I don't think she uh, necessarily invented it, although she certainly uh, made it very clear. Um, but and and what we mean by your primary means of survival is, um, you know. Other animals have special skills that allow them to uh, survive in nature. They've got sharp teeth, or they can run really fast, or they got a thick hide, or whatever it is. Humans are pretty fragile in the environment. How humans survive is by changing the world around them. It's by altering their environment. That's their prim- our primary means of survival. And we do that through the use of our rational mind. It's through perceiving um, how reality works and figuring out how to transform it in ways that are beneficial to us. So to do this, to use your mind and to actually live and survive, you need to have the freedom to take the actions that you see fit to survive. So it's not enough just to sit around and think about being able to plant a grove of apple trees and then harvest them and eat them. You have to have the freedom to plant the grove of apple trees and har- harvest them. You can't just think about it. So um, this primary means of survival being your rational mind also includes the freedom to act upon uh, Whatever your uh, conclusions are, whatever you think is best for your life. Now, this kind of begs the question, well, aren't there any limits? I mean, in isolation, that's fine. if we're talking about a person on a desert island, fine. But, uh, you know, immediately the question arises, well, what about you know, does this affect other people? Can you just kill them and take their stuff? What if that's what? What if that's what I conclude to do, right? And so this is where this the the concept of morality as applied uh, between individuals and in society arises, and we have to figure out, okay, well, what's the right, um, what's the the proper way to derive um, the answer to this question? How do you how do you solve this question? And there's a couple basic models. One I'll call the kind of Randian model, which is um, in the rights model. So this is this idea that um, you have the right to the ownership of your own life and that necessarily then includes as corollaries to that are uh, rights to say the words that you want and to take the actions that you want and the rights to the products of any of your labor, the products of your words, the products of your actions. You have all those rights. Those are part of your right to your own life Um, because again to live requires taking action, um, and so any action you take, you have a right to the results of that action. But, but um, rights, the, your rights cannot be self-contradictory. They can't con- they can't contradict the idea of rights in the first place. So, um, basically, a way to word this is: you can't take any action. You don't have a right to take any action that would violate the rights of someone else. Uh, because if you're asserting your right to do something by contradicting the concept of rights, well, that's an implosion of the concept itself, and therefore you no longer have the right in the first place. And so it kind of logically falls apart. So that's the kind of argument. You can't you can't have a right that violates another right. And so this would be used to say, well, no, you can't go murder someone because and take their stuff. Because um, if you had a right to murder someone and take their stuff— Well, that would violate their right to be left alone. They they have a right to their own life, as we just talked about. So your right to your own life can't contradict, it can't impinge upon their right to their own life. That's where your rights stop where theirs begin, is a common phrase. So that's kind of the rights model of looking at this stuff. There is is another way of looking at this. Uh, This, I believe, came from Stefan Molyneux, and this is... I'll call it by his terms, which is the universal preferable behavior, I think is his terms. Um, and this, you know this model rejects that the the concept of rights kind of altogether, kind of use it as a useless concept um, but instead looks at how to figure out principles related to human action that can be applied universally in a society. So if we're going to live together, the question becomes not who has what rights um, and that's a kind of a, a messy word, but, what principles can we apply universally that can be consistent, um, that that can actually be universally applied without self-implosion? So, uh, and one of the premises here on on this is you can't come up with um, you can't come up with a system in which you would be committing a sin or committing a transgression while in a coma or unconscious, right? It's got to be you got to be in a system where doing nothing is okay right? You're not, doing nothing is not causing anyone harm. You know, you're, you're okay. You're allowed to do nothing at all. Um, and so what they do in, in this, and I, again, I'm going really quickly. A lot of this stuff has got volumes and volumes written on it, both, both in this and on the Randian rights model and stuff. So I'm going kind of quick here and giving an overview, but on the UPB model, what they'd say is, okay, well, how do we determine these principles? How can we determine what's universal rules and what are not universal rules that can be applied? Um, so, you know, an example in which you would f- determine a rule that is universally applicable is you would say, well, or preferable, I guess, in, in the parlance of, of this system, you would say, well, um, I can keep the product of my own labor, right? Can you, can you universally apply the rule that I can keep the product of my own labor? Well, if you look at that, you can say, well, yes, that can be universally applied to everyone. I can keep the product of my own labor. You can keep the product of your own labor, keeping the product of your, like we all have, we all have ownership over the, the things that we've produced ourselves. That can be universally applied. Um, my owning my thing doesn't impinge on you owning your thing. Um, there's no, there's no contradiction. There. So that could be a universal preferable rule of behavior. Like, okay, uh, I, uh. I can, I can keep my stuff. Keeping my stuff is okay, right? And again, that's something that, you know, a person in a coma could theoretically keep their stuff. They're just sitting there, stuff on their lap. It's theirs. So, but now we can look at maybe a non-working example and see, okay, well, how does this, what are some examples of rules that you couldn't universally apply? Or, or instead of rules, we'll say uh, behavioral preferences, right? Well, one would be stealing, So, stealing, let's define stealing as taking something against someone else's will, right? Um, So, if you say, well, stealing is virtuous, right? Taking someone against someone else's will is virtuous, and that's a virtuous rule that we should apply universally. Well, as soon as you try and apply that rule universally, you realize that it breaks down because um, if you apply it universally, then it it will be virtuous of me to steal from you, right? But... Um, If it's applied universally, you would want me to steal from you because it's the virtuous thing to do is to get stolen from um, because stealing is virtuous. But it's not really stealing if you're wanting me to take it. Stealing means I'm taking it against your will. So if I'm taking it against your will, that's stealing. But if I'm taking it not against your will, that's not stealing. You can't really universally apply a rule where um, we have to all take things from each other against each other's will and we have to all agree that that's a good thing that we all take things against each other's will because if we're agreeing that that's a good thing, then it's kind of not against our will, and it kind of the whole thing kind of implodes. Um, the analogy that I would draw here is back to the rights model. It's kind of this idea of what like, your rights end where someone else's begins or where mine begin. It's very, it's kind of very similar to there. So those are the two models. And I, look, I probably butchered them and didn't uh, describe them perfectly, but those are basically the two models that that people use to um, think about rights and or think about I'm going to use the word rights and think about how to how to live in a society um, with other people in a moral way So with respect to both of these with respect to interaction between people um, there's a common shorthand way of Describing these and this is not a complete way. It's not nuanced. But it is a good shorthand that people use a lot, and that is they talk about what's called the non-aggression principle. I, I try not to talk about the non-aggression principle too much uh, because I don't like a lot of times people say the use of force is the problem. It's the initiation. Well, th- people will say the initiation of force is the problem, and I, I, there's a the words the use of force are important in that the use of um, it's this. The idea is you. you uh, there's a prohibition on the initiation of the use of force, um, and the reason that that nuance is important is that includes actual force. So rape, murder, that, that's that's force. So that's prohibited. Pretty simple. Um, but also, if you have the the words the use of force, it also includes credible threats of force. So if you think about human interactions, you it's what you. The, the universal rule that, that is trying, we're trying to apply here is you should not be able to bring to the interaction force into the equation. Um, interaction should be voluntary. And so I may not have to actually shoot you to take your wallet. If I point a gun at you and say, I will shoot you if you don't give me your wallet. Well, technically, I'm not initiating force, but I am bringing force into the situation, which is where the terms, the use of force comes from. I'm using force to get what I want. Um, I'm using it by threatening it verbally and demonstrating that I have the capacity and will to actually initiate that force against you. Um, theft is obviously force, right? You you, you know, even if... if uh, even if someone steals something and you're not actually holding on to it at the moment, um, you know, there's this idea we can we can understand that this is your your property and stealing it is an act of violence against you. You would have to actually then retaliate by stealing it back. So we view stealing as a violent act. Um, and actually even fraud or going or maybe going back on your word is a form of theft, right if i if I promise to send you a hat and you send me hundred dollars for my fancy hat, and I send you a box with a picture of a hat in it, um, I've stolen that money from you. So all of that kind of stuff counts when we're looking broadly at this idea of banning the initiation of the use of force. And so both, whether you look at it from the rights perspective or, or from the UPB perspective, you can arrive at this conclusion that a shorthand way to look at this stuff is a prohibition on the initiation of the use of force is something that uh, is a, a great rule to have in a society. It's a moral rule. It's how to morally... Uh, Interact with other people in a society. So, societies should be built on some kind of rule like that. So, this brings us to um, where I was for a while in my political beliefs, which is the objectivist slash some libertarians. Uh, libertarian is, is loosely defined, so I'm hesitant to say this is always the libertarian answer, but it's definitely the, the objectivist answer. And this is this idea that, well, the only proper function of a government is to protect you from the initiation of the use of force. We we talked about this idea, the initiation of the use of force being the, the moral principle, and therefore, the only proper function of government is to implement that principle. Anything the government does outside of that principle is illegitimate. And so, in a society like this, you would get uh, only laws against the initiation of the use of force, so you would get laws against rape and murder and theft and all that stuff, and, um, You wouldn't have laws against voluntary interactions between people. So you would not have minimum wage laws because that's a voluntary exchange between an employer and an employee, no one else's business. You wouldn't have drug laws. Um, You wouldn't have prostitution laws because those are all voluntary interactions between people. Um, You also wouldn't have social programs because they're not justified. Um, They're not part of the, again, if you go back to the proper function of government is to protect you from the initiation of force, um, social programs... Don't fall into that category. So not justified. Um, you would have a military to protect um, from aggressors who wish to initiate force against uh, the country as a whole, um, and you would have a court system to enforce all of this. Right. So that's kind of the minimal minimal government. Uh, I'll call it the objectivist or minarchist view of things. A little little government, but that's all it does. It doesn't do all this other stuff. And of course. Um, at America's founding, uh, it was much closer to a minimal government than it is now. Um, there are still things like slavery, which is an institution that was enforced, uh, by the government, which the government had no, uh, right to be enforcing, so that should not have been enforced, and obviously there's, there's other things that were problematic at the beginning of, uh, the founding of America, but that's the idea. Now, now we get, so that's, I was in that camp for quite a long time, politically, um, and now we get to anarchy. And I've already kind of described or defined anarchy above. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between what I view as an oxymoronic definition of anarchy or description of anarchy and and actual uh, anarchy, which I think is more anarcho-capitalist. So I use the term anarcho-capitalist. Um, You'll also see see you'll also hear people use the term um, ancom or anarcho communist, um, and the the difference um, the difference here is for some reason anarcho communists believe simultaneously that there shouldn't be a government and. Uh, They also believe in communism. Now, uh, communism doesn't work unless there's someone forcibly, like, stealing stuff and redistributing it. So it's, to me, anarcho-communism makes no sense. Um, but anarcho-capitalism is this idea that there is no actual government, um, and it's the recognition that actually even a minimal government, even the minimal government of the objectivists, um still initiates the use of force, right? And if you if you really step back and think about the definition of a government, um, the initiation of the use of force is part of the definition of a government. It's uh, inherent in what a government is. A government is a body that we have granted the right to use force against us. We've granted the exclusive right. We've said... No one else can come to my house with guns blazing, but government officials can come to my house with guns blazing, um, if they think I've violated some law or whatever it is. Um, We've granted them that power. Now, I want to make a distinction. Anarchists recognize that we haven't actually granted them that power individually. Uh, People like to say, we've granted them that power, but I never did. Uh, I grew up in this country. I turned 18. No one said, hey, uh, would you like the government to have the power to do this? So we didn't actually grant that power, but people uh, act as if the power has been, you know, voluntarily granted and ceded to the government. Um, But some obvious examples of how the government initiates the use of force is taxes. Any kind of tax or tariff—it's very clear, right? Um, You are, you know, you you plant that apple tree that I mentioned earlier. You pick some apples you sell them to your friend, the government wants a piece of that. And if you don't give them a piece of that, uh, they'll fine you in court systems and blah, blah, blah. But eventually, if you're, you know, just don't apply, you do nothing after selling that apple or those apples, uh, men with guns will show up and use force against you. That's what the government is. Every law, every regulation, everything you want the government to do is enforced at gunpoint that's what a government is that what's make that's what makes government different from facebook we may all dislike facebook for a variety of reasons but facebook you know mark zuckerberg can't show up at your house and throw you in jail for violating the terms and conditions of facebook the government can and that's the fundamental difference between a government and and other entities so um anarcho-capitalists recognize that even a minimal government actually does violate this this uh, rule of the non-initiation of the use of force. And some people will argue, well, there's voting, so you're you've given them the right to do this, so it's consensual. But that's a, that's um, that's really just the argumentum ad populum, right?, uh, which is a logical fallacy. Uh, voting is just a way to obfuscate that some people are allowed to violate the rights of others because their neighbors voted for it to be so. That's not moral. There's no morality there. Um, Even if 99% of the people vote that, you know, all gingers should be shot, that doesn't make it okay. There's still, you know, you can't... That's not where morality doesn't come from, the will of the majority. So any form of democracy, including the you know, the republic, any republic, any form of democracy, um, is just argumentum ad populum. It's just a logical fallacy that, well, the right thing to do is what, what people vote to do. That's not, that's not how morals work. Um, that doesn't make it right. And um, that doesn't mean, because my neighbors voted to bind me to a social contract, doesn't mean I've agreed to do the social contract. Um, so, by the way, there may be arguments that people have against some of these. I'm just trying to explain what the position is here, um, and, which is my position. Um, so, what an anarcho- anarcho-capitalist, how an anarcho-capitalist often arises at this conclusion, how I arrived at, is the, the recognition that actually, if we're really going to respect the, the non-aggression principle, so to speak, if we're going ex- to respect this idea that you cannot initiate the use of force against your neighbor, then all interactions really need to be voluntary, and a lot of people instead of calling themselves uh, anarcho-capitalists call themselves voluntarists. It's a newer word. You'll see some. You'll see some people say voluntarism. Uh, I like the word better. Actually, I've been trying to start saying voluntarist instead of anarcho-capitalist because it's less scary, um, and it emphasizes the real intent here, which is that we want people to interact voluntarily no one in society is granted the power to initiate the use of force over anyone else that's not something that is appropriate to grant in a civilized society so i think uh, if you are going so actually maybe now's a good time to mention a a quick uh, a quick difference between anarcho-capitalism which is voluntarism and anarcho-communism if you have a voluntarist system, your friendly neighborhood commies are welcome to go off into the desert or jungle or wherever. They're welcome to go form a commune whereby they all agree voluntarily to abide by the rules of the commune and share their labor and share the products of their, their work um, and share burdens and all that stuff they can do all they can set up their communist utopia uh, provided that they all do it voluntarily with one another and a voluntarist society would leave them alone that would be fine if it turns out that that's some magical formula that works really well then they'll probably start to be more successful than the rest of society Um, voluntarists are peaceful uh, at the core because they are against the use of the initiation of force On the flip side, if you have an anarcho-communist society, which is hard to even fathom, but if you have an anarcho-communist society, it's not okay for a bunch of voluntarists to go off into the woods and say, well, for this, we're just going to, we're going to live by voluntary exchange here. We're not going to share stuff among each other. We're not going to share with you guys. We're just going to have our own little society. Um, That's not allowed. You'll get shot. You'll get thrown in the gulag, whatever. Um, So... That's that's the main difference between those two. So there are people who call them an- themselves anarchists, and you got to be careful to see which camp they're in because one, I believe, doesn't even count as anarchy. It's just communism. And when they say anarchy, I think they just mean woohoo chaos. They just want chaos and violence, and that's not what voluntarists are uh, are calling for. So you know, the other thing I'll the other point I'll make is if we were in a pure voluntarist society. I think um, I think it may end up looking quite similar to a small government. Um, you know, people will band together to deal with bad apples. There are going to be some bad apples to do things. They'll primarily deal with them through ostracism, um, voluntary contracts, exclusion, and that kind of thing. Um, but... Uh, the, the main difference, and, but you would have communities of people who agree, like, you might even buy a house in a volunteerist society with restrictions on it, that's not because someone, there's not, there's no force involved, it might just be, well, um, the people that originally built that community had agreements with each other about what they would and wouldn't do on the property, and now you're buying, that uh, that title and it comes with the encumbrances that were originally agreed in the community. Like none of that is forceful, none of that is force. So you can have rules, you can have order. Um, I think you would see a larger role for um, a lot of insurance and, um, and those kind of organizations. There's entire volumes, again, written on what a voluntarist society would look like and how this stuff would work out. But in many cases, I think you might see something similar to what you imagine a small government. Um, looking like, with the key distinction that there's no single entity or organization in that society that has carte blanche to initiate uh, the use of force against other people in that society. And that's a very important distinction um, because the authority authority always increases. Bureaucracy always expands. Governments always grow. This is an emergent property of a bureaucracy. I've talked about this before, but... um, by their nature, they they grow, and that's because the self interest of the people in the bureaucracy is to have the bureaucracy grow, um, and it's very difficult to set up any system that can effectively. I've never seen a system that can effectively um, curtail the natural tendency of bureaucracies to grow, and as they grow, rules expand. If they if they have the exclusivity uh, and authority to use the to initiate the use of force, then um, it's going to grow in a way that will uh, infringe the non-aggression principle. So uh, that's, that's the, the main the main difference, is you've got in, in a voluntarist society, unlike a minimal government society, uh, you don't have anyone with the power to initiate the use of force over anyone else. Now, So now the question is, because I know a lot of you probably hear this and think, well, I don't like anarchy. We would be a massively implemented anarchy. And also, you don't hear me talking about or advocating for uh, anarchy politically. And I don't advocate, I don't spend time advocating for anarchy um, or even voluntarism. I don't spend a lot of time advocating for that directly. And there's a reason for that. To understand the reason for that, we really need to look at uh, how I think what I think is required for sustainable uh, political structures. So Andrew Breit- Breitbart famously said that politics was downstream of culture. I think he was correct about this. Um, laws or any political system, even volunteerism, uh, they're just pieces of paper. right? Laws ultimately are pieces of paper. The culture overrides laws. Laws might guide them. They may at the beginning reflect what the culture was. Um, They may have some influence on slowing down changes in society. But ultimately, the culture is the, you know, it may be glacial, the movement of it, but it's unstoppable. So just for some examples now, look at the Second Amendment, or even the first lately. Um, If you if you look at the the words of the Second Amendment, it's very clear what the meaning is. But if court systems don't care, if lawmakers don't care, if court systems don't care, if people are willing to just uh, change the definition of words or or pretend to interpret interpret them in ways that make no sense, or they decide that this is less important than that or whatever, they they can overrule they can overrule whatever's written by default. Even if they don't explicitly overrule it, um, they, society can act irrespective of what, of what's written on pieces of paper. I mean, we see that all the time. I mean, pick up the Constitution, look at the first ten amendments to the Constitution, and then just go look at almost anything the government is doing, anything in the news about what the government's been proposing to do, and... Um, any kind of regulations, any kind of um, uh, restrictions on anything from guns to what kind of meat you can buy to, like, anything, Uh, all of it is unconstitutional. And I know a lot of you agree with me about that. Well, if it's unconstitutional, fixing the Constitution or changing the set of rules it's really kind of moot. It's culture that controls, which is why I'm more interested in changing culture. Because even if we had no rules, if the culture was, if the culture was moral, um, if the culture was more voluntarist, it kind of wouldn't matter what the rules are. If there were bad rules, people would advocate to change them, or they would just ignore them. So culture really controls. However, there's another facet to this, which Breitbart didn't talk about. I believe philosophy is upstream of culture. So um, I think actually he was using upstream, so he probably said culture's upstream of politics. So I probably butchered his quote earlier. But anyway, culture's downstream of philosophy. Philosophy comes before culture. And culture culture can be a complicated word to piece apart. Um, The way I'm talking about culture, uh, I'm going to talk about culture as if it has two, two components. Um, if you want to learn more about what I am what I think about how culture should be thought of, uh, you can read a I'll, I'll link to uh, the Medium article, part one of the Mike Christchurch and Western Culture series, uh, talks about what culture really is. Um, and also there's a related article called Don't Tell Me What I Should Like, which uh, is about separating aesthetics from philosophy in some way. So if you're interested in that kind of nuance, have added, I'll put the links below. But um, culture really can be broken into um, what I think two categories. One is what I would call co- um, evolved cooperative strategies. So this is things like manners, right? Um, and the other is basic philosophic premises. So these are like metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. Um Now by the way, the problem with that construction is that aesthetics would technically be under philosophy. I don't think it belongs there, which is why I have that other article about how aesthetics is a separate thing. But aesthetics is part of culture. But anyway, for the purposes of this conversation, um, basic philosophic premises are part of culture. We'll just focus on that part of culture. Um, again, this is things like metaphysics, like what you know, what do we believe is is uh, true about the nature of the universe? right It's um, epistemology where do we get our knowledge from how do we know what we know Those are embedded parts of culture and you know just as an example to look at this right a more scientific culture scientific culture is going to answer the question of epistemology with well um, we determine things based on maybe the scientific method and we use evidence and we have rational logical arguments to reach conclusions and and that's how we um, we have we have theories and we test those theories and see if the evidence contradicts those theories and then we adjust them. Okay, that's a more rational epistemology. That that becomes part of an entire culture if that's what if that's what uh, is prevalent in that culture. On the flip side, you could have an epistemology of uh, you believe in in the rain god and you need to do a rain dance or the the weather gods, and whether or not it's going to rain tomorrow or you know what kind of crop you should plant on the field next to you is determined by uh, mysticism and prayer and maybe some runes or a dance that you do and you know or flipping coins whatever it is that those are different epistemologies from um the more scientific epistemology rational epistemology and so obviously those have an effect on culture and ethics is a the big branch of philosophy huge effect on culture right is it okay for Gay people to engage in consensual sex and marriage. Um, some cultures say, no, they should be thrown off the top of buildings. Um, those, you know, those are kind of the extreme Muslim cultures. Some cultures say, sure, it's none of our business. Sex is, you know, sex between consenting adults is no one else's business. And they want to get married, fine. Those are two vastly different cultural perspectives. Um, but they, they come from uh, philosophy. They come from the questions of ethics. Is this wrong to do? Um, and so I believe that culture is downstream from philosophy, which is why I spend most of my time not arguing for, uh, voluntarism politically, but arguing for, um, a change in culture or, or, uh, more sound moral philosophical thinking. And, you know, because, because I believe those two things, uh, if anarchy is going to sustain itself, we need to have if any system so any political system is going to sustain itself, it needs the cultural and philosophic foundations that will sustain it. Um, this is one of the things that we're seeing in America now. We're seeing a loss of the cultural and philosophic foundations that built the West and we're falling apart despite what our Constitution says. Similarly that you know that that includes even anarchy. Anarchy can't be sustained if you've got, And when I say anarchy, I mean voluntarism. Voluntarism can't be sustained if you've got an entire culture and and philosophy that's antithetical to its existence, that rejects the the non-aggression principle, um, for example. So this is why I focus on advocating for cultural and philosophic principles rather than for immediate political change, right? Um, I recognize, even though I'm a voluntarist, I recognize that if we all woke up tomorrow and magically government wasn't around and it was just anarchy, uh, I'm not confident that it would be peaceful. It certainly certainly take a while to get to peaceful if it was going to get there, uh, and probably not very sustainable given our culture and our our current uh, philosophy uh, as a culture. So um, that's why I'm not really advocating for that. But I'm advocating for the culture and philosophy that I believe would enable voluntarism someday. And by the way, you don't have to agree with me on the goal of voluntarism. You could agree with me on the goal of a smaller government or a minimal government. Those are on the road. They're on They're on the road. We have to go through that stop culturally and philosophically before we could possibly get to voluntarism anyway. So I would love uh, to actually have to have an argument with a minarchist about which is better. Uh, Minarchy or voluntarism? I think I know the answer, but it's a moot question right now because we're both driving in the same direction Which is let's get this government smaller and I think to do that we need to change the philosophy and and the culture we need to reestablish a philosophy based on Enlightenment values and a culture based on enlightenment values So that's why I'm aligned with a lot of people who are smaller government even though technically I think the end goal should be voluntarism so that's my answer to the first question, I know that was long and involved, uh, I hope that answer helped you. The voting questions is uh, actually much, I think much simpler and easier to explain. Um, given all of that context, if you understand that uh, the government is the initiation of the use of force, then when you vote, you are voting for one particular aggressor to initiate force or violate the rights of innocent people, as opposed to some other aggressor violating the rights of the people in a different way. And so, um, this, this idea, this knowledge that the government is fundamentally the initiation of the use of force, this understanding by voluntarists and anarchists makes them hesitant to vote for a couple obvious reasons. One is it makes them feel like an accomplice to violence, right? Because, this added level of indirection, well, I didn't steal your stuff, but I voted for that guy to steal your stuff. Like, it it feels, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel moral to do that. Um, and there are no politicians that you can possibly vote for that I've ever seen. Um, maybe, maybe Ron Paul, kind of, but I don't even know how good he was at this. There are no politicians that I've seen who have, like, I don't want to violate anyone's rights. I want to repeal everything. Like, I don't, I haven't seen that. Um, Even Ron Paul didn't say that. He came close. Maybe he was more of a uh, small government guy, but so anyone you vote for is usually proposing to initiate the use of force against other people for some other reason for their pet project. So um, it makes you an accomplice, which is why a lot of uh, voluntarists don't want to vote. Another reason is it legitimizes uh, what we all view as an immoral system. Um, And the idea for a lot of voluntarists is it's better to have it be obvious that society rejects the system as a whole. And you do that by having very low voter turnout rates um, and demonstrating to people that the government is not something that we care about, want to support or are interested in. Um, And so that's the other idea behind it. The other thing, you know, the other, this isn't really a a reason, but it is a, a reason for a weak motivation to vote is when you have the, minarchist or voluntarist perspective on here, when you understand um, really that this is not a question of the left versus right, for example, but uh, huge, massive authoritarian governments versus no government, and there's a scale there and people place themselves somewhere on that scale, when you recognize that that's a more accurate representation of what matters morally— um, you start to view the Republicans and Democrats as, as what they are, which is basically just a uniparty of control. Um, Republicans sometimes run on more uh, conservative or smaller government ideas, but rarely, if ever, enact them ever. Um, Democrats don't even bother to run on them. Um, it's a, uh, it's hard to get motivated to, to vote for evil team blue or evil team red. So um, there's just a lack of motivation there as well is another another reason people don't vote. Um, However, you didn't ask this question, but I just want to clarify, I hadn't voted for decades, but I did vote for Trump. I voted recently and I voted for Trump. It was the first time I voted in a long, long time. Um, And... I'd like to just quickly explain the reason. Um, first of all, I gave you the reasons that voluntarists don't um, don't often vote. I don't believe that that we have a moral obligation to not vote. Um, some voluntarists believe that we have a moral obligation to not vote because it makes us an accomplice to um, the initiation of use of force, as I mentioned. I don't believe that. The reason I don't believe that is I believe that's uh, what, what I would call emergency ethics. Um, we are already in, you know, emergency ethics are these the ethics where like someone has a gun to your head and they say you have to shoot this person or that person. Like, who do you shoot? Or like those kind of emergency ethics, you're already under duress. Someone's already initiated the use of force against you. So um, that's the situation that we're in now. Our rights are already being violated. We're already being aggressed against. So we are under duress, and once you're under duress, um, you know any actions that we take are already actions in self-defense. And I would argue that moral judgment is really replaced at that point by strategic and tactical reasoning as to what the most effective way of getting out from under duress is. Um, it's no longer really a moral question, but a question of what methods you think are most effective. And so, you know, if voting for Team Blue over Team Red is you think is the most effective to to get to the 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 oppression off of your back to get the authoritarian government off of your back. If you think that's the way to unravel everything and get to voluntarism, then you know I might argue with you that I don't agree with that. But it's not a moral argument at that point. You're you're doing it because you're under duress and you're doing it for for the reason for to, of trying to get yourself out from under duress. Um so I don't believe that I had a moral obligation not to vote. I just wasn't voting because A I wasn't motivated and B um I I didn't really I didn't really want to be giving the system uh legitimacy. I wanted to see when when people looked at voting uh percentages I wanted to be counted in the I don't even I don't even legitimize this government enough to show up. So um However, I did vote for Trump, and the reason I voted for Trump is not that I agree with him on a bunch of issues. I'm not a conservative. Uh, Trump's not either. Um, I I didn't think he was going to be politically very different than other presidents. I don't think he has been, actually. I know the left will, you know, uh, run around claiming the sky is falling and that he's destroyed all of Obama's legacy, and he has done some things to undermine Obama's legacy, which is great. Um, But. Uh, he hasn't he's not that different right I mean he's doing things like you know playing trade wars with China and you know he's he's uh into regulations I mean he's cut some regulations but he still talks about you know regulations and and controlling companies and stuff so he's not he's not on my team but Trump was the first politician I saw ever in my life uh, to actively be fighting the culture war against the radical left and i view the radical left as an ex- uh, as an existential threat uh to this country um i think we're already living under some authoritarianism i know that is shocking to some people who feel like america is free but we're not that free um, it's easier to start a business in shenzhen frankly than than california uh, and i'm not kidding i'm that's not hyperbole so, yeah, we can't criticize the Chinese government, but, you know, pretty soon we're not going to be able to call someone by the wrong pronoun here. So, um, it's not, I'm not saying China's good. I'm just saying we have this view of America as this great beacon of freedom, and it's not. It, it may have been at one point, but it's not. So we're already living under some, some form of authoritarianism. But if the radical left wins, I think that becomes irreversible. Um, and, and the radical left is overtly hostile to Western values. What we're living under now is people who often give lip service, pay lip service to Western values, but then undermine them through uh, the policies that are enacted and through growth of government. And the left doesn't even pay lip service to Western values. The left is actively fighting against Western values. And, um, and I think if, if they win the culture war, this becomes irreversible. So I voted for Trump not because uh, of any of his policies, but primarily because he was fighting the culture war. and specifically, he was fighting effectively against the media. Uh, I view the legacy media as one of the, uh, one of the the Darth Vaders of the, like they're the Darth Vader of the enemy. They are the lapdog of evil ideology, and they have been uh, lying for the government, lying for their own political, uh, and philosophical agenda they are dishonest they are not trustworthy they have massive influence they have massive resources they have, they sway culture in an incredible way and they need to be dismantled because they're evil so the fact that he's going after them uh was a big plus in my category so I've, i i are in my in my estimation of him so yeah i went out and voted for him because i want the culture war to be fought and and He does do a very effective job, I think, of fighting the culture war and specifically tearing down legacy media. So that was a long solo, Kofefi. I hope it answered uh, the questions. So, the person who asked the questions, I hope that you weren't the only person who wanted, uh, who wondered about those things, because otherwise you'll be the only person who watches this video and cares. But um, I hope that clarifies things for some people. Uh, Please let me know in the comments if there's. Uh, if you think I misspoke or if there's questions, further questions or or whatever. But that's where I stand on it. That's why uh, I'm a voluntarist, and uh, that's why I didn't vote for a while. So have a good one, everyone. We will see you tomorrow for live Kofefi Friday. Kerry uh, will return, as I said, for that. Thank you so much for liking and uh, sharing our content. Please continue to do that. It's how we grow. And uh, really a shout out to all the Subscribestar supporters who've been getting anonymous donations in addition to more subscribers. So uh, I can't tell you how much that means to both me and Carrie. Uh every, every time there's a new subscriber, you know, we look at it and it's we're one step closer to being able to kind of do this full time in a way that Carrie doesn't have to work and uh, we, can, we can step up our game here. So much love to all of you. Thank you very much for your support and we'll see you tomorrow.